Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined today by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute and... On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, as per usual, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, it's just us, um, one of those episodes that we hear the audience likes well. And uh, we're trying to do a wrap-up, basically, of the most important events on the southern part of the eastern um, uh, of the eastern flank or eastern front um, over the last few days, um, and looking into the next few days as the counteroffensive of Ukraine picks up steam. Um, so the to-do list for today includes um, Globsec, the most important um, think tank conference um, in Central and Eastern Europe of the year um, where Dalibor just was and he's returned in one piece. So we want to hear the impressions. Um, and then just after that, um, we had the European Political Community Summit in Kishino, Moldova, probably, well, for sure, the most important event that Kishino has hosted in the last few decades. Before and after we had the Turkish elections and then the inauguration of the old new um, leader of Turkey, and and of course the counteroffensive. So why don't we get started with um, Globsec and Dalibor? What are your impressions from there, and how did Macron seem? Julia, thank you. I mean, it's it's it was it was great to be back in Bratislava. It was my first trip back to my hometown since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. You know, weather was great, food was nice, it was nice catching up with friends. Globsec itself is a very impressive endeavor, I have to say. So, so you know, from very humble beginnings, it has grown into a very sizable, important affair. I mean, I don't know, like probably is less high profile than Munich and Halifax, but it's not trailing too far behind, I would say. And, and by Central European standards, I would struggle to sort of think of a similar event even in Poland or, 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 or other, other, other Central European countries. It came on the back of, uh, of a survey just released by Globsec, the Institute, which, I mean, organizes the conference on attitudes towards the West, towards the war in Ukraine, in which... Slovakia came uh, really trailing behind its neighbors in a very depressing way. So, so you you had uh, the highest proportion of Slovaks in among in, among sort of citizens of countries of the region who are in favor of leaving NATO. A good third of Slovaks want to leave NATO. Sixty nine percent of Slovaks think that supplying arms to Ukraine is just provoking Russia and it's a higher proportion than than in Bulgaria. And and so it, it, it tells you something about the sort of fragility of the sort of pro-Ukrainian, pro-Western consensus that exists in the country. And and so in that sense Globsec is doing, you know, terrific work in sort of at least like socializing Slovak political elites to the realities of of the world, like by bringing in these sort of statesmen and policymakers and intellectuals from from around the world, from the United States. So, so you know, kudos to them. And now to Macron. But, but before before we go to Macron, can we? Does that include Hungary? Yes, that includes Hungary. Yeah, that includes Hungary, wow. where 
uh, you know, it's been the official policy of the government, like for the past 12 years, that you know we are not that much keen on NATO and and and, and those kinds of things. So, like you know, like you didn't have public opinion sort of massaged by like state media for the past 13 years in Slovakia, and yet it's been sort of drifting in a in a in a kind of unsavory, depressing direction. And people, I mean, I kept asking like my Slovak friends about this. They they seem you know at loss to explain it. But but back to Macron. So so I, I I was there at that session, which I mean I mean he's a very skillful politician. Clearly, this was not just a courtesy call. This was a real effort to like you know make friends with Eastern Europeans. There was a lot of sort of verbal sort of outreach. You know we should have listened more and were too arrogant and and and, and that kind of thing. And and I think that's sort of you know that was well received. But I mean, the, the 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 big substantive point that he made was that he understood that post-war Ukraine needed tangible, clear, strong security guarantees. I'm not quite sure what the exact wording was, but but I mean, he was not you know fudging the issue, and at the same time, he said that he didn't think there was a consensus yeah. within NATO on, on on giving a sort of you know clear clear path towards uh, towards alliance membership. To me, that raises this question of of like you know like what 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 other like clear and tangible and strong security guarantees we can provide to Ukraine. Like, you know, if you could have a plurilateral, you know, guarantee, like if Poles and Americans and Brits, let's say, said that they would come to Ukraine's defense, you know, would that be credible in the same way? Would that not be credible? I I, I don't have an answer to that. If I may, I do remember his wording because he said something to the likes of, we need something more than Israel has. Um, but not we don't have enough con- we don't have consensus yet for NATO and and this is exactly what I thought when I heard this. Um, so what NATO and Israel have in common is one security guarantee and that's by the United States, which people argue in the region too is the only credible security guarantee. Not France, not Poland, not Turkey, not Germany can provide the same kind of credible security guarantee, including the extended nuclear umbrella. So I don't know, with the comparison that he has made something in between this and that, what he actually meant by that, because I don't think French troops are ready to help Ukrainians fight Russians. He has the track record. (laughs) Okay, he's he's a many times convicted uh, felon when it comes to trying to substitute you know european autonomy or some other security structures you know that amorphous but the one thing that we do know about it is it's not meant to be led by the united states or you know i'm not even sure whether macron envisages american participation so are we decode this as a helpful thing yes all he said nice things about I'm sorry for insulting all you Eastern Europeans or Well, such. it's the first time. Well, okay, <laughs> but you know, um, we have to put this in the context of Macron's overall behavior, right? I, I think that's that's exactly right. So, so some of our friends, like like Uli Speck on on Twitter, provided a sort of very cynical read to this, which is that basically, you know, he hasn't really changed his overall sort of ambitions, goals. He wants to be the one who sort of negotiate the peace with the Chinese and Russia over the heads of everybody else. But in order to get there, he needs some buy-in from Central and Eastern Europe. And so this was one of the ways of getting that buy-in. And and I mean, he, you know, he did a really impressive job as a public 
orator at an international forum. I mean, I'll, I'll grant him that. And then he raised, I mean, you know, like it's, it's, I think there's a sort of real substantive question of like, okay, so what do politically feasible and sort of substantively tangible security guarantees to Ukraine look like? Like what's the sort of like? They look, they look like NATO and the United States. Well, 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 well so, 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 but like, is it, it like, is that? But I'm not. But like, you know, is, is that on the list, right? Like, so, like, if we can't bring Sweden into NATO, like, if, 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 you know, if, if at the Vilnius summit somehow we were to say at the end of the war Ukraine can get in, like, you know, would that be believable? Like, is, is it? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. At the next event that we're going to talk about, which is, by the way, Macron's invention, the event, the event in Chisinau, there was a declaration signed between Zelensky and the Romanian president on Romania's support for Ukraine's membership in NATO. Clearly, Ukraine is trying to collect these in preparation of Vilnius to to get something. Um, but to me, the wording was exactly what Dalibor was mentioning earlier, because Romania signed this declaration, but the wording was, will support Ukraine's membership as soon as the conditions permit. That's exactly what is meant by that. What are the conditions? It's like, we will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. What is it, right? Um, is it the end of the war? What kind of an end of the war does it have to be? We're back to square one. Um, and I think Macron is exactly talking around that when he says, when he makes comparisons with Israel. But maybe that's a good segue to turn well, to... Well, I want to, I want to, before we go, I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, other, the, many... We don't leave the, Macron, we promise. Well, okay. <laughs> the East European members of NATO likewise have a track record that makes them that makes one want to raise questions and that goes back to the original round of nato expansion where we're supposed to be all for one one for all and they tossed the ukrainians out of the boat back in the 1990s quite knowingly with for, forecasts of what has come to pass since then so i mean if i were a ukrainian I would say maybe there could be sort of a coalition of the willing to NATO standards prior to full-blown accession. But I, I would want to hug the United States as tightly as possible and as long as it takes. Uh, but like even even then, like when you when you think that through, like so if, if there were like an explicit alliance, like you know, US comes to your defense if you're attacked. Like if and I think through like the politics of that in the United States. Like if you if you know if you tell voters that it's not even NATO as a collective who will come to defend Ukraine, but it will be the United States in isolation. Like like the sort of toxicity of that in the American context. Like like what would you know the sort of Trump, DeSantis, you know, and others like make make of that. They like they like all the rest of our alliances much better than they like NATO. These are the guys who want to defend Taiwan to the death. Wow. Uh, and and so look and and so we have many bilateral formal treaty alliances. Uh, some with some people that we wish we didn't have. Uh, alliances with no 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 I, I i i i do appreciate that it's just um like i, I suppose like in order to that it, it is like you know in some circles it's almost useful to sort of hide behind nato oh i look i i don't it would be it would be preferable to be sure but i would just say ukrainian security is 
fundamentally measured by the amount of American participation. NATO would be far better, but especially if, uh, you know, some other unspecified security guarantees were a prelude to that. The first thing I would want to do is, if I were Zelensky is get the United States in the boat and hope the others will climb aboard. Yeah, you know, even at large, and we keep talking around this, a lot of European security is dependent on what is happening here. And that's what would explain why every single transatlantic conversation ever since 2016 and now even more so is started and ended by Europeans with what about the United States? Is that a reliable ally? So it certainly is is an issue. But we have one event where the at least one where the United States was absent and it's of course in French in the making. And that's the second European political community event, um, this time in Chisinau, in Moldova, where 49, if I'm not mistaken, European leaders um, have come together, including Zelensky. That certainly was, um, he certainly was the star of the show. Maya Sandu, the president of Moldova, was um, the star host. Um, and there was one missing Um um, I'm already revealing the segue later, and that was Erdogan. Um, he was invited and he didn't come. But but beyond the kissing and handshaking and hugging and the very nice background in, in Moldova, yes, it, it was excluding the United States. It was, however, welcome as an event to discuss certain issues. We saw the declaration that I just mentioned. And I thought it was interesting what Zelensky did. He had a meeting with Maya Sandu, and he asked the community, the European community and the international community, for a coalition for Moldova and Ukraine and package a coalition for air jets and for um, Patriot systems. He even called it that. And uh, Maya Sandu did not disagree, but that's for me the first time that I see the two countries working together because Moldova has a completely different attitude vis-a-vis -vis, um, vis -vis Russia and is more vulnerable, arguably, um, than, um, than Ukraine is. So I thought that was the most important security takeaway. So, so if, if, if I can uh, just re re react quickly to that sort of bilateral thing between between Ukraine and, and Moldova, between Zelensky and, 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 and Sandu, it brought back a memory of a recent conversation with one Romanian policymaker who shall not be named, who might or might not have come through Washington recently, who almost casually mentioned the possibility of Ukrainians coming to Transnistria and mopping up the, the Russian peacekeeping force. And and it was, I mean, it was a sort of very arresting remark on his part. And, and, and to sort of see that brought back to light at the EPC summit was, 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 was really interesting. And it was completely taken over by Russian propaganda. That was the interesting part too, because in Transnistria and in Gagauzia, the other sort of breakaway or attempted breakaway region within Moldova, there's uh, attempts to create a referendum, a new referendum for independence. Um, people are being sanctioned across Moldova by the EU. It came sort of as a package present um, in the context of the summit. And um, there was a lot of freaking out exactly around that. It, it sounded like tomorrow the Ukrainians will descend on, um, on Transnistria. <laughs> 
They say, said, you Russians better leave now while the getting's good. That's basically <laughs> what Zelensky said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you got to like that. All right. That's uh, Moldova. And then before we go to maybe Ukrainian counteroffensive, quickly um, on Turkey, we had the election. Uh, I was surprised to see here in Washington both Turkey experts and Turkey watchers, government and non-governmental, being very convinced over the last few weeks and months that Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition leader, will win, and yet he didn't. Um, and we had the inauguration um, just after the political community summit that, in terms of leaders, got more than double of what um, Erdogan got last time, um, a lot of regional leaders, but nevertheless. And what does that then mean? A lot of people asked for Black Sea Eastern Front um, policy. Unfortunately, as we can guess, more of the same. Uh, we know that Russia injected $5 billion into the Turkish economy last year to help out one of few remaining friends of Putin's, Erdogan. And so Putin must be happy that Erdogan has um, or is staying in power. Um, Erdogan has created a lot of dependencies on um, Russia in one way or another, um, some more justified than others, and um, that's probably going to continue. And at the same time, Russia um, cannot uh, help Turkey enough. I don't think they have enough cash because now the economy of Turkey is still with all the help from the Gulf countries over the last few weeks too, in free fall, um, now being stopped at I think 40%, almost 40%. And so sooner or later, Turkey will have to go to the IMF, I'm guessing, and ask for Western help. Nomination, Erdogan's nomination for the central bank heads um, seem to suggest that much. And then maybe, maybe it's time for the United States to discuss with Turkey what Turkey has to offer if they cannot consider changing their policy within the Black Sea region of keeping the West out. Um, we know that Erdogan will need, uh, is transactional, and uh, we know that he will need cash. So it's a matter of how much the United States is willing to prioritize actually control of the Black Sea region as opposed to small gains, political gains. Just first of all, in passing, the Turkish opposition leader, came through Washington, what was it, last fall or something like that? And Erdogan is blessed, has been blessed in his opposition. I mean, this guy was, you know, gives wet lettuce a bad name when it comes to uh, crispness. Uh, he was old. This was his first visit to the United States. So he's not cosmopolitan. You know, it's, it, it certainly seems as though the old cosmopolitan Kamalist, you know, everybody keeps waiting somehow for those guys to return. Uh, they're, they're, they're off with the old establishment Republican uh, party someplace, uh, you know, in the netherworld. But, you know, maybe Erdogan will tack now that he's gotten himself through the election, you know, maybe he's now ready to talk Turkey uh, in regard to Sweden. And, and find the final point is that we've been way too slow to try to come up with alternatives to sort of bypass the Montreux Convention, which is 
our listeners may not know is is what uh, sort of regulates the access of warships of all nations through the straits uh, from the Mediterranean into the Black Sea, uh, in which Turkey guards very zealously. There are things that that we could do. The Black Sea isn't huge. We could do land-based maritime surveillance. Um, once the Russians lose uh, Sevastopol, you know the the balance of power will change in the region. And uh, Yulia, you used to talk about this all the time. There were many proposals for a NATO Black Sea fleet, so to speak. Yeah, Romania put that on the table in 2016. Back then, Bulgaria, and we learned later, Turkey vetoed. Um, but the situation is a completely different one. I think there's room for negotiation over Montreux in Erdogan's view. He is not applying. Oh, you the, should put the screw. We should put the screws to him and tell him. Yeah, let's. He's let's, not applying you know, it at literum in the right now in the war neither. And uh, and then there's ways I've written about this um, uh, with Batu Guteria, who we've had on the podcast about circumventing literally. There's the Danube Delta, and that doesn't there. The Montreux Convention does not apply there. You can have basing there. Um, Romania and others can also buy more ships. Um, they are due to do that. Um, that can create a bit of anti-access um, area denial in the western part of the Black Sea. And then, yes, if Crimea is free, everything will be a lot freer. We can, we can reopen Azovstal. <laughs> The risk of sounding just like totally idiotic. So, so what's the concrete ask we would have on Turkey with regard to the Montreux Convention? Like, so are they not allowing? Are they like? Are we, is anybody was thinking like sending ships to, to to the Black Sea, Americans, others, or and and Turks wouldn't allow it? Or according to the Montreux Convention, there cannot be basing, permanent basing of external countries in the Black Sea region. They're um, saying the Black Sea is for the Black Sea countries. And so, um, and so you can have a few ships, the United States or other Western partners, for a certain number of days under a certain tonnage, rotating in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and there has to be an ask every time. Yeah. I believe exactly. Yeah. So it's not. Like we are taking. Uh, we, are to- we are talking like hypotheticals now. Like it hasn't been a sort of. Oh, that, well, there have been, you, you know, there have been problems. I mean, Turks drag their feet. Uh, they, they follow their usual patterns of behavior in terms of approving requests, limiting uh, the size of, uh, you know, any flotillas and so on and so forth. And, and this is also overreaching right now into the civilian area. Again, it's gray. You can apply, you cannot apply each criterion. But the reality is that if you're looking at the grain deal, the number of ships that are slowed down due to excessive um, inspections or are not let through is every month significant. And that's the Turks not applying it properly. We kind of know that it's a deal that Putin agreed to because it makes Erdogan look good um, and that Erdogan is cashing in a lot on this grain deal because um, they have to pay transit fees every time they're going in and out of the Black Sea. Um, And so it's like the general attitude. But the last thing I'll say here is that from my conversations that I've had with Turks and Turkey experts over the years, this is a policy that is pushed by the establishment, not just Erdogan since the 90s, keeping the Black Sea 
to the Black Sea countries, they call it, or keeping it internal. And they told me that even if the elections would have changed the leadership, um, this policy would have stayed the same and that Turkey insists continues to view the whole or the majority of the establishment views that any movement of letting the West even a little bit in would provoke the Russians. So I think that's a policy that is transactional and I think it can change because the reality on the ground in the Black Sea has radically changed over the last year. Well, so I guess one way around that is for, for Romania to build up its fleet. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the for the, the, the air, aircraft carrier RRS Vlad Tsepes crossing the straits. I don't know, like this may be just a false memory, but somehow I remember that the Moskva was built in Ukraine. Uh, so, I mean, Ukrainians used to have, they had a big shipping shipyard network. There's no reason, you, you know, if Ukraine is safe and secure and all the rest of that stuff, that between Romania and Ukraine, there could be a preponderance of, and with, you know, again, it's a small sea, so the ability to project, you know, military power from the shore is pretty substantial. If the Vikings did it, then then we should be able to do it. So before we go, shall we um, have a brief look into this phase? People call it this maybe start. I think it started a while ago of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Giselle, what is the most exciting part for you? <laughs> Uh, the most exciting part is I get to use the term shaping operations, uh, which makes me feel, uh, you know, particularly intelligent. Yeah, so there have been, an inc- first of all, the Ukrainians keep saying from Zelensky on down, you know, we're ready to rock. Uh, and I believe that to be the case. Everything that they could do, I think they will have done by now. Having a, a narrative of victory for the Vilnius summit in mid-May would have a win a premium price uh, uh, for the Ukrainians. And, you know, what with the counterattacks, I mean, the the steam has gone out of the Bakhmut narrative. Like, that is like a Chinese spy balloon uh, sort of a situation there. So, you know, things are sort of turning in a Ukrainian direction. And it's just important for them to seize that moment, maintain some momentum. And and f- final point here, I, I, I think the win for the president for the White House on the debt relief or debt service bill here in Washington bodes well for some sort of substantial Ukraine subsidy, which is going to be needed very soon. I mean, the drawdown authority for the president is coming to to an end uh, very shortly. But it, it makes me think that there's still a pretty good majority, uh, even in the House of Representatives, for sustained Ukraine aid. So, um, you know, it seems like the uh, tide is turning uh, in a Ukrainian direction these days. Dadebor, what's the most exciting thing for you as you're looking at the counteroffensive? Well, the news of, of, of leopards supposedly appearing in the Donbass region. I mean, it, obviously, like we are, we know, it's, it's the fog of war. We don't really know anything, uh, but but like something seems to be in the air, right? Like they wouldn't be just doing these things for fun. And and it looks like, like uh, you know, like I'm, I'm 
I have, can't claim any expertise in this area, but it looks like Russians seem singularly ill-prepared to sort of hold positions and respond. I mean, there were reports of like shooting between between the Prigozhin Wagnerites and and and, and regular Russian forces. Yeah, there's more even. I saw that the Wagnerites took hostage a lieutenant colonel um, of the Russian army, and they have him in front of the camera. So it's pretty, whatever they're doing, the Ukrainians... Did they hit him with a sledgehammer? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not that I know of. If I could just, you know, so the Russians have been making a big deal about the defensive lines that they've been preparing through the winter. There was a, a great... And all you see these, you know, satellite images and overhead drone footage of long lines of dragon's teeth, like this is the West Wall or something like that. But there was a, a delightful video on uh, Twitter of a British Challenger tank with a plow in front of it, <laughs> push, pushing aside uh, these supposed dragon's teeth that the Russians put out. It, it reminded me of... Of two things. It reminded me most of all of the spinal tap routine where they're going to do the song Stonehenge and they order up, uh, you know, styrofoam triptychs a la Stonehenge and they specify <laughs> that, the, that the, the, the stones are supposed to be 10 inches tall instead of 10 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a very obscure reference, uh, which is probably over the heads of most of our sane listeners or, you know. Well, we'll, we'll need to include the link. Uh, we'll put that in the, in the in the show notes. All right. So then um, we'll leave it at that. Um, but we'll certainly um, keep our eyes on the Ukrainian counteroffensive and cover it as best as we can. And until then, from me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalibodohaj, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing rating and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for a newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.